It's good to see you here. Uh, two weeks in a row. That's a that's a new record for me. So I'm very very excited to be here this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name's Matt. I, uh, I serve here as one of the pastors, and it's a great joy from in my life to be able to teach the Bible week after week. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of a, a brief sabbatical, and so I'm still kind of disoriented. I still sometimes forget which day it is and what I'm supposed to be doing where, so that's fun. Um, some of you, that's just your life. Some of you are like, you walk around confused all the time, and you're fine with that, but I'm learning. I can't wait to get old and, uh, and do that then, but it is, good to, it is good to see you there. I'm sorry. sorry. It's good to see each one of you. I, I trust that your hearts are prepared today, and you might ask, prepared for what? And prepared to hear the Word of God. It is a great gift that we get to sit under the teaching of the Word, prepared to have ourselves open to the gentle scrutiny of the Holy Spirit through the Word. That's that, those are those painful moments when somebody's reading the Bible and talking, and you're nodding along, and all of a sudden your nod turns into an ouch. Like that, that's the scrutiny of the Spirit in your life as He convicts and shows you, hey, this person I'm talking about isn't just the Pharisee. No, it's you. I'm, I'm talking about you and your heart and your issues. And I hope you're prepared to receive that, because if you're not prepared, sometimes we get defensive. And if our hearts aren't humble before the Lord, when that happens, we, we want to fight Him instead of submit to Him. Trust that you're prepared to be encouraged and challenged and built up and strengthened, admonished and comforted, not by the words of a preacher, but through the Spirit of God, through His Word as He moves the longer I do this, the longer I serve in ministry, the longer I teach the Bible, I'm more and more convinced that it would be a wise practice for each of us, not just pastors and teachers, but each of us, to find times to quiet our hearts on Sunday mornings before we come. Whether that's in your car on the way there, you might say, Matt, I have kids. I, I, I know, I have children too. My poor wife is like a single mom on Sunday mornings. I haven't, I haven't seen my children in the morning on Sundays in 18 years, 15 years, right? That's all old Avery is. I'm up and out early, but it would be wise for you to find some time to quiet your heart and prepare yourself to hear from the Lord as we gather in this place. So in that spirit, let's just pray together this morning before we begin. Father, we thank you for this gift it is to serve you, the joy it is to be part of your church, the joy it is to be part of this church and what you're doing right here in this region. Lord, we, we confess that we are a distracted people. We are a busy people. We are a technologically plugged in people. And often we can't, we can't focus our minds and our hearts for any more than a few seconds. So Lord, we ask for your help today to do that. In this moment, the best we know how, we, we, we are trying to release the busyness and the worry from our lives. So we ask that you would take it. We try, we're trying the best we know how to release the distractions. We ask that you would take it. And in its place, give us the enduring presence of the Spirit to hold our attention, to open our hearts and our minds. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As we are moving through the Gospel of Mark at a slower than snail's pace, Today we find ourselves at the beginning of a description of Jesus' public ministry. And I warned you last week, eventually we're going to pick up the pace. That's not today, but eventually we'll get there. 
And right as he begins, as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, after he's been tempted in the wilderness, after he was, he was coronated as the king, right? The baptism of, of John and the spirit descends. This is my son whom I love. Jesus, the king has arrived. The first thing he did, he went into the wilderness. We saw that last week. And now he comes to begin his public ministry. And in the opening volley of this public ministry, Jesus introduces a bit of a crisis. Now, when I say the word crisis, some of us think natural disaster like a hurricane or a flood. Or we think of a physical calamity or sickness or illness. And I'm not necessarily talking about that, but I'm talking about those moments of increased urgency where a decision has to be made. It's a crisis moment. Many of you have been in those moments before. I can think of one for me. And I assure you, I don't make this stuff up. This just is my life, okay? A couple of years ago, we had friends that bought a cruise for us. They, they said, listen, we love you guys. We want to we wanna cruise with you to Cozumel. So we'll pay for the, the, the cruise. You just get here. And I said, that sounds like a good deal. Sign me up. So it was in March. And we scheduled it in March because we thought that the, the greatest chance of us being able to leave the tundra of New York without a blizzard would be as late in March as we could. So we set it for March. And the Lord in his wisdom and goodness sent a blizzard to us that week. And we were to fly out early on like a Wednesday morning to Florida. And so we watched the weather and we hunkered down inside of our house on like Monday. And it began to snow worse than I've ever seen it snow in all of my 40 years. I shoveled and snow blew my driveway four times trying to stay on top of it. The final time I shoveled was at 1.30 in the morning, the night before I was supposed to leave to go to Florida to catch our, our boat, right? Woke up early and we left, and the airport was, was said it was open. But Simon, who was texting with me the whole day earlier, kind of let me know that it was, it was a mess down there and they weren't going to tell me how bad it was. So I walked into the airport with my wife early in a cold, blustery morning, packed up. We had our swimsuits and t-shirts and shorts. We were ready to go. And we walk into the airport and we are like the only people there. And we say to them, hey, is everything okay with the flight? They, yes, Ms. Reaches, let me check. It's like 5.30 in the morning. They look at their screen and say, yep, everything says it's on time. And I looked at them and I'm like, don't lie to me. I'm looking around. There's nobody here. There's a foot of snow on the runway. You're, you have to be lying to me. And I said, are you, uh, I said, hold on a second. Are you telling me, I feel bad for these people when I'm in these moods, but I said, are you, are you telling me there's a, there's a plane at the end of the, 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 run, the walkway thing, the jetway? Oh, no. I'm like, hmm. Is there a plane anywhere out on the tarmac right now? Well, well, no. I'm like, but the plane's on the ground here in Albany. Yes. And I said to the lady, I leaned up to her, and so I'm in a crisis moment, right? Because if I give her all my bags, and I check in, and this thing gets shut down for the whole day, and I can't get out of here, I'm going to miss my cruise, right? So I leaned into this lady, and I said, ma'am, I'm going to tell you a story here. I said, me, me and this beautiful woman who's tired because she has four children and she has to deal with me, this woman here, and I have tickets to a cruise to Cozumel. And if we don't get to Tampa today, you and I are going to have a problem. I said, 
But if you tell me with honesty and clarity that I'm not going to be able to fly out of Albany, I will go to that rental car spot and I'll drive to New York City and I'll just catch my connecting flight there. And she looked at me and smiled and said, you need to go to New York City. And I said, perfect, thank you. And I ran over to the budget rental car and there were two vehicles left, a Suburban and like a Nissan Note, like a Versa. So I took the smallest thing, the cheapest thing I could get and we raced off to Newark and by God's grace, they were flying planes that day and we, we made it. But there was a moment of crisis where I had just a few minutes to decide what I was going to do. And that decision, whether or not to stay in Albany and trust the deceptive lady behind the counter or follow the Spirit through my inside track, Simon Jones, and get out of town, I needed to know in the moment what to do. That's the kind of crisis moment I'm talking about, where we've, we've had those moments in the past. And early on in Jesus' ministry, he introduces us to a crisis moment. And every one of us who have yielded our hearts and lives to the lordship of Jesus have been in a crisis moment just like he's going to describe. So the first thing we see this morning in, in Mark chapter 1, we're, we're going to look at the message of Jesus and the messengers that Jesus sent. We're going to start in verse 14. Here's how the Bible reads in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he, followed, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, so let's look at, starting in verse 14, if, if you're new to Newtown Road, we're just going to kind of work through the, the verses together, make some observations. I wish it was more clever than that. I've tried for years to be more clever than that. I'm really boring, and I'm sorry, but that's how we're going to do it. Verse 14, after John was arrested, really quick note on John the Baptist being arrested. They don't really talk about it. He wasn't just arrested. He ended up being beheaded, but he, he takes a whole chapter later on and talks about that. So we'll get to that later. But quick note, John the Baptist was out preaching. Everyone got upset, and they, they arrested him. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Here he enters into Galilee and begins this public ministry. And what he does is he preaches. God sent Jesus to be a proclaimer, a preacher of truth, a revealer of the word. He comes speaking to people and proclaiming to them. What does he proclaim to them? The gospel of God. That word gospel is a, is a combination of words. It means good message or good news. Jesus comes onto the scene and preaches, proclaims the good news of God. Now that doesn't mean it's just good news about God. It means that it belongs to him. It is his message. It is his good news. It is his um, gospel. And what is it? What is the gospel that we proclaim? What is the gospel that has changed our lives? What is the gospel that the church of Jesus Christ is built upon? It is that men, 
were lost and dead in the darkness of sin, separated from a holy God by their sin, and they stood condemned before God with no way of closing the gap. But God in his mercy sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, to be the payment, the sacrifice, the substitute for our sins. He died on the cross to to cover the sin. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. This gospel message has been the foundation of the church from the first day until now. Jesus arrives preaching the gospel that he says, I'm the son of God who can make you right with him. And saying. And so what we're about to read is not like the appendix of the gospel. Like here's the gospel and here are the footnotes that come in the back. As he proclaims the gospel, this is what he's saying. The way he's communicating it which should inform sometimes the way we communicate it. Can we be honest? The way he communicates it is this. He comes saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The time is fulfilled or the time has come. Both of them are, are good translations of that phrase. Well, what time is he talking about? What, what time? It, it, like 9.30? Sometimes when we're ready to leave our house, I say, the time has come. Let's go. Get in the car. And then I end up leaving four or five people at my house and going wherever I need to go. Right? What does he mean the time has come? The, the era, the epoch, the... It's not just a chronological time, but an era of history. It has arrived. It has been fulfilled. The time the pre-written in eternity past, the predetermined, established time of the coming of God's kingdom. The time is here. Jesus' arrival signified a cataclysmic shift in what God was doing in the world. The time is here. And that time, that era, is in conjunction with God's glorious purposes. So the time is not a chronological time, but an era, a period of history. Kind of like the end of the Eli Manning era and the beginning of the, uh, the what's that guy's name? Daniel Jones era, that's it. A, a, a one door has closed on a previous era and a new door has opened. So this time is, is of epic importance. It's the dawning of a new day. And, and actually, of a new way of relating with God. For the previous day had closed. And this is the time that God's people have been waiting for longing for, praying for, desiring, prophesying about. This is the era that they have been clamoring for, groaning in wait in anticipation. But it didn't come the way that they envisioned it. But it doesn't change the fact that it was a monumental historical event. You see, what they thought was coming was a geopolitical kingdom. They thought a kingdom was coming that would set up like a capital building and would have a, a governing body and there would be territory and land and alliances and enemies and they thought that there would be rules and regulations like all the other kingdoms of this world. But Jesus is clear in the Gospels, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's something altogether different. And this kingdom, the kingdom of God and of his Christ, this kingdom that begins with the, the, the tiniest mustard seed is going to one day come and, and cover the whole earth. And I think instantly of our, our studies in Daniel. 
where we saw the, the kingdoms of this world in layers, right? That statue and then that, that stone, that rock not cut with human hands that crashes and destroys the whole thing and grows up into be this huge mountain. The time is here for that kingdom, he says. The arrival of Jesus is not just the arrival of a new message, not just the arrival of a political revolutionary and a good moral teacher. It signified that the long-awaited kingdom of God was finally here. So he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, or actually that word is near. The kingdom of God is near. It is not far off. It is not distant. It is marked by closeness. It is around us and among us and with us. The kingdom is near. What is the kingdom of God? How would we describe that? And I'm, I'm going to take great comfort in the fact that Mark moves very quickly through all these things, so I have freedom to move quickly through them as well. But if you really wanted to rack your brain, you can study for years all that's been written through church history about the nature and the definition and the mission of the kingdom of God. And it is enlightening and wonderful. And we're not going to do that today. So what is the kingdom of God in, in overview form, the Cliff's Notes version? I'm a Cliff's Notes guy. Just tell me the basics. What do I need to know to pass this test? Here's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, in a very simple way, the place, the sphere of influence where, where God rules and reigns. It is God's people living under God's rule in God's way. So it's, it's the place where people live and gladly submit to his righteous leadership. And the Jews are confused about the nature of this kingdom. They were so focused on the earthly kingdoms of this world. And what, what we find is that people living in this new kingdom that God is, is establishing, they don't have a very flippant or casual relationship with the king but are yielded instead and submitted to his authority and his leadership and his rule. Their identity as part of this kingdom is, is undeniable. The kingdom is at hand. The place now is, where, is the time is for us to, to be part of this kingdom and walk under his righteous leadership. It is the place where God rules and reigns in my heart if I'm part of this kingdom. And sometimes I wonder how clear my allegiance to Christ and his kingdom really is. The Western church, specifically the American evangelical church, seems to have a, a kind of different view of God's leadership through Christ in their lives. Almost as though Jesus might be an insurance policy against great personal calamity and chaos, but not always a present, glorified, glorious king who rules and reigns over each decision of my day. He is not just Savior, but also Lord of our lives. But Jesus is saying, God's kingdom... The kingdom that's promised, the one that we've been waiting for, is here. It is at hand. It is close by. In what way is it near? Was he close to the entrance of the kingdom? Well, yeah, he was the entrance of the kingdom. It is near in him. It is at hand in Christ. It's, it's there in Jesus because the king has arrived. The kingdom is with him and in him and with and in all who are in him. That sounds really confusing. This is a theme in Mark's gospel. The kingdom is the place where the rule and reign of Jesus are seen. The places where people live gladly in submission to his leadership. 
And it's not a kingdom of this world. It's different in nature than that. It's here at hand. It's in the king. Mark is making it as clear as possible, and I'm trying to as well this morning, that the arrival of Jesus signified the dawning of a new era. God had begun to spread on the earth the kingdom through the ministry of Jesus. That mustard seed had arrived. And it's now going to just multiply and enlarge and exponentially increase until one day, in his timing and according to his glorious purposes, he establishes it fully here on earth. And then Jesus introduces the crisis point. Like my story at Cozumel. With all the information you have, what are you going to do with it? Reminds me of another somewhat silly illustration. Once upon a time in a far-off land called Minnesota, there was a football game being played, a Super Bowl of sorts. And a team that had never won the big game with a second-year coach and a backup quarterback found themselves down fourth and goal to go. All of a sudden, they're in a crisis. I see that hand. All of a sudden, we're in a crisis. The clock is ticking, 30 seconds to make the call. If you go for it, you succeed and open a lead on the defending champions. And if you lose, if you go and you miss, then you waste this deep trip and you hand the ball off to a 58-year-old quarterback. The only, no, I'm just kidding. What do you do? Well, the answer is clear. You, you motion your quarterback out of the pocket. You hike to the running back. You, you throw it to a backup tight end who throws the ball to the backup quarterback. That's how you do it. Crisis point. Right? And you cement yourselves for the next, the next three millennia in the hearts and lives of every Eagles sports fan. Right? Crisis point. Okay, it's a really silly example. If you're not from Philadelphia, if you're from Philadelphia, that's the greatest play in sports history. But, silly example, but what about this? Emergency surgery is needed. The doctor comes and says, listen, here's the pros, here's the cons. My advice is to do this. Could you, could you say no? Yeah, you could. Here's what the effects are. What do you do? They say, you've only got, you've got moments. You're looking at cancer. Here are the treatment options. This one does this, this one does that. You don't have that much time. We've got to get this quickly. What do you do? Crisis moment, right? You got a new job offer on the table. It says, hey, it's a great job. It comes with a lot of, lot of benefits, a lot of perks. There's also some sacrifice. I need to know by the end of the day if you want it. What do you do? We, we've been in crisis points before, right? Negotiating the purchase of a home. It's not going quite as planned because it never does. You try to lowball. They countered. Well, what do I do? If I, if I come back with them and stretch myself, I don't know if I can make that payment. If I lowball them again, they might walk away. There's another, another couple at the table. What do I do? I have till the end of the business day today. We have all been in those situations where an urgent decision is required based on the circumstance and the information at hand. You're sick, you're ill, you need treatment, but your body's a time bomb. You have to decide now. The job is on the table, but there are other candidates you have to decide now. Fourth and goal, you got something to do. You got to decide now. And that decision has lasting effects, one way or the other. Guys, our lives, this is, the, this is where the real uh, following of Jesus lives in, and moves in our daily lives. Our entire lives are built up of these moments. What do I do? Jesus introduces a crisis point 
into his gospel proclamation. And what he says is, here's the information. I'm here. I am the king of this new kingdom. The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is right here in me. Here's the decision. Repent and believe. Don't play games. Don't pretend like you got it all figured out. Don't lean in and try to do this on your own. Turn away from your sin and believe in the gospel. There's the crisis point. Repentance. What is, what is that word repent? That sounds like a harsh old school word. It is, and it's a good word. And one that we need to use a lot more of. What does it mean to repent? Repentance, you might be surprised to know, is not just remorse. It's not just feeling bad about something. That's just emotion and guilt. Repentance is a, is a turning away from. A, a, a laying down of your life and yielding to. It is, it is a walking away from a previous thing. It's not just a desire to turn over a new leaf. No, no. Godly repentance comes with a, a change of heart that leads to changes in, a, in actions and attitudes. What does repentance mean? It, it means that when I turn away, in, in this sense, it means that I turn away from my previous life, my current way of living, my current way of understanding God and relating to him, which was no way of relating to him at all, because apart from Christ, the way that we relate with God is that we think of him as a harsh taskmaster, that if I could just please him with all of my good works, then maybe he'll accept me, and that's not how he works at all. We turn away from dealing with him in that way. We lay down all of those, all of those efforts and energies, and we turn to him in faith, turn toward him to receive from him his gifts of righteousness and grace. Now, it is a turning away that is based on not emotion, but knowledge. And I understand who Jesus is and what he's done for me. He is the king of the new kingdom. God is establishing it here. He died on the cross to set me free. I need to repent and believe in the gospel. Based on this truth, I see myself for who I am. He's the righteous king. I am not. Some of you might be here like, Matt, that's kind of harsh. Why do I need to repent? Are you judging me? No, the Bible is. I'm not judging you. The law of God does a sufficient job at that. We are all sinners before God. All of us have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why do I need to repent? Well, I need to repent because I'm not perfect like God. I've said this before. It's not a matter of whether or not you're as righteous and moral as me. I could care less if you're righteous and moral like me. I hope you're better than me. I'm a bum. The deal is, how do you stack up to Jesus? And when I say that you're a sinner and you need to repent, and I'm a sinner and I need to repent, I don't mean that you're a bad person compared to Chad. By the way, if that were, if that were the standard, we'd all be in some good shape. What I mean is, I mean, you're a bad person in comparison to Jesus. You're not perfect, holy, righteous. You're not without sin. You yield to temptation. You give in. Your attitude and heart betray you. That, that's what I mean. You, we need to repent because we're sinners. And we need to turn to the only one who can fix that sin problem. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to see how we've made the gospel presentation and the call of the gospel more about a personal connection to God and less about turning away from sin. 
And I, I'm a child of the evangelical church. I grew up in a conservative fundamentalist church. But one thing that I've noticed in the trends of Christianity is this intense focus on the love of God without the knowledge of the guilt and, and weight of sin. Being a Christian is in part about having a personal relationship with Christ, yes. But that personal relationship comes because I repent of sin and trust him to be my savior and he unites me with himself. Sometimes we, I mean this as lovingly as possible, sometimes we need to think about how we share the gospel. The good news is only good if it, if it saves me from my sin. And when we talk to people, it would probably be wise of us to follow the example of the scriptures and lead them to an awareness that they're not okay with God because of their sin. You should know him personally, absolutely. We should ask him into our hearts, but the, the way the Bible describes conversion is not that way. It describes it in the terms of repentance and belief, a turning away from sin and believing in Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. On a negative side, we turn away from our previous life. On a positive side, we grab hold of Jesus and his grace. And any one of us in this room who has trusted Christ, remember that day. When it all clicked for us, the, the information became clear, we sensed the Spirit's call, we felt the crisis point of decision, and we said, I have to do something with this information right now. And we didn't have it perfect and we stumbled and wallowed along the way. But in a very clear moment, we turned away from what we were doing and who we were and embraced this new way of life with Christ. And if you're here and you never have, then today needs to be that day. Turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. He says, believe in the gospel. There is the message of the kingdom. The message that the church has been proclaiming for thousands of years. The message that faithful churches must continue to proclaim today. Repent of sin and turn to Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Why else would it be so necessary for Christians to be mobilized into the community to share the gospel? How will they believe in him they've never heard of? That's, that's our job, to go into the communities, to proclaim the good news so that people can turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. And then he calls a group of messengers to the kingdom. Because his method hasn't changed. He comes announcing the kingdom, and then he sends other people to go announce the kingdom. Thousands of years later, guess what the church's job is to do? To go announce the kingdom. To mobilize into the community. Be the hands and feet of Jesus, proclaiming the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So he sends messengers. He walks along the Sea of Galilee, which isn't really a sea. It's kind of a misnomer. It's like a big lake. 13 miles by about seven and a half miles. At the time, it was a very, very lucrative fishing spot. So he finds some fishermen. I've often wondered if you have any insight into this. I'd love to hear it sometime. I've often wondered why he picks two sets of brothers. I, I know a set of brothers in my home. They are wonderful, polar opposites, but I don't think I'd put them together on a team ever. I don't know how well that would work after about seven seconds, right? I don't know why he called two sets of brothers. I don't know why he called fishermen necessarily, but it's a beautiful, 
beautiful calling. He walks along the Sea of Galilee and he finds Simon and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea because they didn't have the Zebco 404 reel. They were throwing nets in and pulling them out. That's how they were catching fish. And they were in the process of their work day. Jesus is a headhunter. He shows up on the job site and says, hey, you two, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. This invitation is to be his disciple. And while that might gloss over our heads, it did not fly over theirs. It meant to follow him, to listen to his teachings, to be a servant to this rabbi. The, the disciples were the ones with the job of washing feet and preparing meals. They, they knew what it was at stake. And he says, if you'll do that, if you'll leave this behind you, if you'll come follow me, I will radically reorient your life. I'll make you fishers of men. No longer will you work the waters for the harvest of fish, but now you'll work the highways and the hedges and the fields white with harvest for the souls of men and women. I'm not so sure what to make of it all, but it was a clear offer of a new life, an altogether different purpose, an altogether different uh, pursuit. Mark's focus in his gospel on this idea of following Jesus is evident if you read it. You'll see it over and over again. And he uses different terms to describe the kind of life of, of being invited into this discipleship. There are different ways he describes that initial counter when people are called to discipleship. And sometimes he, he talks about it in terms of like almost responding to a summons. Your presence is being requested. Like, oh, okay. Sometimes he, he talks about it in terms of attaching yourself to somebody. Sometimes he talks about it in terms of accepting authority, like you are now in control of my life and I follow you. And sometimes he talks about it in terms of imitation. I will walk like my teacher. When Mark describes becoming a disciple, he has these things in mind. When the Bible talks about becoming a disciple, he has those things in mind. We should probably have the same things in mind when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. If you are a Christian today, if you have trusted Christ, if you have entered into this life of discipleship, then those things ought to be characteristic of our lives as well. We respond to with the summons. We come because we've been called. We attach ourselves to the Lord Jesus. We submit to his authority and we imitate him in our daily lives. Jesus walks up to a boat. I don't, I don't know if these guys have had previous encounters with Jesus or not. Some people say yes, some people say no. He issues the summons, leave this life, come follow me, and they do immediately. Immediately, they leave their nets and they go and follow him. And then he walks down the road a little bit farther on the Sea of Galilee and he sees another set of brothers, the sons of thunder, James and John. They're Zebedee's sons. They're working in the boat, mending their nets. And he walks up to them and he says the same thing, come follow me. And the Bible says, immediately, Immediately they left. They left their dad in the boat with the crew, the hired servants. The owner's sons just walked out of the workplace and left dad alone with the grunts and essentially said, peace out. We're going to go follow this guy, have a nice life, walking away from all of it. There is something so powerful about the description of those first disciples. 
Something so powerful about how they understood the call of Jesus on their lives. Because when the words came, they were so powerful to them that they were willing to walk away from everything. From family, from dreams, from career. There seems to have been no hesitation. We're not told of any. It's a common response here. Immediately they leave their nets, they leave their father, they leave their job, their livelihood behind, and they go and follow Jesus. A great reminder of the comprehensive call of God on our lives. Jesus is not some other thing that we add to the already full plate. He's not a yoga class. He's not a gym membership. He's not, he's not a hobby or a book club that we sprinkle in on top of the plate of our lives. He is, he is calling for a comprehensive, radical reorientation of all of it. He wants to dump the tray and become the new foundation you build your life on so that all your book clubs and your yoga classes and your gym memberships are actually stacked on top of him and work through him. This is a comprehensive call to discipleship. Notice these guys didn't say, well, hey, could we do this at night and on the weekends? Maybe we could work out a part-time deal, sign up for an internship. I'm not quite ready yet. They left it all. And maybe we didn't realize this when we came to Christ at first, but through pages in the scripture like this, now we can see that if we are children of God through faith, the calling of God on our lives is not a hobby and it is not an extracurricular activity. God wants all of it. So that means that when I'm weighing options on my career, he gets to choose. When I'm trying to discern next moves for my family, he's consulted and he gets to decide. When I consider how to invest my finances, serve the community, he gets to be in charge of that. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. And these guys gave him everything. There's a reminder there to the authority of Jesus on in his claims on us. Well, who gave him the right to demand all of it? Uh, he did. He's the creator, the redeemer, sustainer of life. He gives you breath. His mercies are new every morning. Without them, you die. He gets to decide. That's how this goes. He, he gets to decide. He, that's what Jesus is asking for in discipleship. Sometimes I wonder if the reason people don't trust Christ and come to him is because the idea of discipleship that we've sold them is so weak and insufficient. I don't need a gym membership. I already have one. I don't need a book club. I'm not that interested. I certainly don't need yoga. I'm fighting hard right now. I don't need yoga. Um, I don't need any of those things. And if we present Jesus as an add-on, he's a plug-in. He makes your operating system work a little bit better. If you just take this thing and add it on, then everything else will be sprinkled. It'll taste like sunshine and lollipops. It'll be beautiful. If we present him like that, then nobody wants that. They don't need that. They've got everything. But if we present him as the king of kings and the lord of lords, the king of this new righteous kingdom, and that presented in a way that we could die to our old way of life and find nothing but 
peace and joy and acceptance in him, forgiveness of sin and life everlasting, and have a comprehensive Lord and Savior to guide every affair of our lives. And then, doubly more, he promised to be with us each step of the way. Now that's something people can get excited about. That's something that'll change people's lives. Not a book club. By the way, if you have a book club, I'm so happy for you. And please don't take this as a, a, as a denigration of book clubs. I love books. They're wonderful. Keep reading. So what? You bet you knew that was coming, right? So what? What does all that mean? What does that mean for us today? There's a couple of things I think we can see. One, the arrival of Jesus signaled the dawning of a new, radically different, supernaturally powerful era The time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The Old Testament, when you read it through and you see all the longing and the prophesying and all these beautiful images of a new kingdom that's coming and you see the groaning of God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years, finally, if you're reading the Gospels, you're like, whoa, this is it. Here's the answers. Now we get to the good stuff. It's going to happen. God's going to fulfill his promise. It signals, the arrival of Jesus signals a whole new way of life. Second is this, Jesus introduces a crisis into the ordeal. The response that Jesus asks for is repentance and faith. Have you repented of your sin? Please please hear me, Just, just hear me out on this. Have you seen yourself for who the Bible says you are. I'm not asking if you wanted to turn over a new leaf. And I'm not asking you if you wanted a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm saying, have you seen in the scriptures yourself as a sinner under the righteous judgment of God because your sin separates you from him? Have you seen yourself through the pages of the scriptures as completely unable to fix that? Have you watched in your own life the emptiness of trying with everything you have to make yourself better, to improve yourself, to clean yourself up, only to be empty again? Have you seen in the scriptures yourself as alienated and separated from God? And then have you seen in the scriptures the Savior who interposed his precious blood, who poured himself out for you and for me, who inserted himself into the chaos of our lives and rescued you? And have you turned away from that previous way of life and embraced him? Have you repented and believed in the gospel? That's it. There's the gospel message right there. That's the heart of the church. Have you turned away from sin and turned to Jesus? And if not, why not today? You say, man, I don't know how to do that. Do I have to fill out a card? No. Mercifully, there's no card to fill out. Thankful. We hardly do anything with paper anymore anyway. There's an app for that. No, there's not. How do I do that? Well, how do you, how do you do This is great. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. What do you do? You receive it. You turn away from sin and through faith, through faith, you throw yourself on the mercy of God. And no longer do you rely on your own good deeds and your morality and your church attendance and Bible reading. No longer do you rely on any of that to make God happy with you. Instead, you rest in the perfection and the righteous gift of his son. Is that simple? Yes, it's that simple. And also, that crazy difficult. To lay down your life and die to yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. He introduces a crisis in the ordeal. And the third thing I want us to see today is this comprehensive call of discipleship. 
For these early followers of Jesus, the first steps in this new way were steps of laying down their past and yielding to this new life. The longer I serve in church ministry, and I've been doing this now for 19 years, the longer I serve in church ministry, the more I see people who are wrestling with and struggling with the demands of discipleship on their lives. And I found myself there many times as the way of Jesus encroaches upon and bleeds over into my own way. And I must once again yield to him, and I don't want to. His way, his plans, his desires, they actually come into direct conflict with my career plans and my desires for relationships and my desires for my, my spare time. And, and I don't really want to serve on that ministry team. I like Thursday night. It's good TV. I don't want to practice with the worship team. I want to watch Thursday night football. Right? And all of a sudden, I'm just speaking for a friend, sometimes the call of Jesus on our lives, the comprehensive whole life call of Christ conflicts with my little kingdom of myself. And I've seen people like me wrestle with that and struggle with that. I've seen others who turned to Jesus because they knew they needed a savior but never understood that he was laying claim to their whole life. And they're miserable until they find freedom in that. And some of you here today, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you have held off. You have held back. You have walled up your heart and said, look, I want your salvation and forgiveness and I'll give you a tithe and lip service. I'll even serve you from time to time. But you're not getting hold of my life. And today you need to hear that what Jesus called you to at the beginning and what he wants to work magically and beautifully in your life is that comprehensive call. He wants it all. And you might be here today like I was as a young person, afraid of what that means, afraid of what those next steps might be and what it will cost you. And I will tell you this, it will be radically different than anything you ever imagined and you will never regret it. Never. So maybe you're a Christian here today who needs to take steps into full discipleship. Lay down your life, lay down your desires and submit yourself to his lordship over every area because you've been holding back. May we find encouragement in their example this morning, these first disciples, these heroes of our faith. And may we find the Spirit's strength to lay down our lives, to die to ourselves, to take up the cross of Jesus and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and your time, our time together today and what you teach us. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't stiff arm us and hold us off because we're sinful and messed up, but instead you came to us on a rescue mission. You, you came looking for the lost, the broken, the hurting, the bruised, the sinners, the sick, and provided healing and rescue and strength and help. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be opened to the call of discipleship on our lives, that you would, in your mercy, just grant us the ability, grant us the ability to lay it all down. I pray for my friends in the room and for the areas of my own heart where I have walled off and created these, these rooms that I ask you not to touch. These areas of my life that I don't want your advice and don't want your leadership on. I pray for those in the room who are in misery trying to, trying to straddle the fence. I pray that today the fence would come down. That the walls would come down. That you would show them in this moment that there is no greater joy in life than dying to myself and laying it all at the feet of Jesus. Pray for the young person struggling with relationship decisions. Pray for the college student wrestling with career. 
Pray for the young parents trying to figure out how to establish life. Pray for the empty nesters who are trying to reorient after a new era has begun. And I pray for those in that final stretch who are trying to honor the Lord in this season. Help us, God, not to wall off areas of our lives. But help us to be all in. Give us the strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.